Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Minds to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. This is our 147th show. Today, our guest is Dodd. Uh, our guest today is Dr. Dodd uh, Kashdan, author of The Art of Insubordination, which I happen to have loved the title. So, uh, Todd, tell us about your background first uh, before we get into the book. Sure. The Well, there's the emotional side and there's the kind of professional side. The emotional side is um, I was raised by a single mom in a lower income area of New York City. And um, you kind of learn without without a male role model as a father in the picture, being raised as twins, um, you learn really quickly that the most inefficient route to develop your skills and figure out the social world is trial and error. And that's what kids of single parents often have to do. And so you learn what makes you funny, how do you attract people, what repulses people, and you figure out what your interests are and what you're doing to follow the herd in order to chase likability. And that background was really the created the architectural framework for me eventually deciding that I want to devote my life to understanding what motivates human beings to do what they do, the power of conformity and how it influences people. And then how do you acquire well-being when you live in a neighborhood that's really opportunity poor? And I started my life working on Wall Street and realized I wasn't interested in money. I was really interested in understanding the human mind, which led me to psychology. I think you picked a great major because I'm so about understanding people and I have a subscription to psychology today. And a lot of the authors I picked for the show uh, talk about these kinds of issues. So let's talk about why did you write this book and why this title? Because I thought it's very uh, provoking. Yeah, I mean, that's the name of my newsletter, Provoked. So it fits it fits with the theme oh. of how I approach the world, which is I think we need more, more jesters and fewer preachers. And part of being a jester is you're poking and prodding at some of the norms and some of the rules that people are following a little bit too closely. Um, so I started this book about six years ago. And so this is be you know before the 2020 election. This was when there's a couple of interesting sociological trends. You had the average person was working 12 different jobs in their adult life. So they're used, just like as people are talking about today, you didn't have a consistent work life. Um, it was the lowest rate of religiosity in the history of society. And that's still declining as from over the past six years. You're talking about um, a change of all of the years of mating, this massive social upheaval where you have things such as Bumble, where people are deciding is that the person who's going to be the progenitor of activating whether a relationship is going to start is the woman, not the man. And that is a very new sociological effect. And there's more egalitarianism in society, completely imperfect than there ever has been before. And you put all these things together and you realize what stimulates these cultural shifts, what allows for cultural evolution. And if you look at 60 years of science on minority influence, you realize there's great power in dissenting from the so-called culture, norms, rules, or orthodoxy. And that's what the book I wanted to read. Nobody had written it. And that's the best impetus for spending six years of your life. And what's your definition of insubordination as it relates to business? Well, everything in our social world can be described in hierarchies. You have a hierarchy of social attractiveness, who gets the most attention, who people want to sit next to at lunch, and you have a hierarchy of power. Whether we want to acknowledge it or not, they exist. That when they walk into a room, eyes turn towards them and people are receptive to what they have to say until proven otherwise. Insubordination is about willingly disagreeing or challenging the rules, the ideas, 
the systems that are above your rungs on the hierarchy. You lack power and status, and yet you don't necessarily lack influence. You just have to know that there are very particular ways for you to actually to challenge authorities and the ideas of authorities that are outside, seemingly outside of your range and your reach. You write there are uh, different types of insubordination. What are they and what can it be? And, and when can it be a positive? Because you write a lot of positive stories throughout the book about people who are quote unquote insubordinate. Yeah. So to me, looking at the cross history, sociology, psychology, and the business world, you find four archetypes of principled rebels, which is basically your synonym for insubordination. So you have the one that most people really think about, which is the innovator, and they're basically creating content for other people. You have the culture shifter, which is someone that is altering the norms and pushing the norms of society and saying, maybe we're not inclusive enough. Or maybe we're excluding a great number of ideas and a number of people at the table. Then you have what I call the niche carver. And this is someone who is creating content for you as an individual. You want to live a personalized, idiosyncratic life that's a little bit different than other people because everyone has their own temperament, personality, and life history. And doing that is a form of insubordination, is you're saying of, you know, I don't want to have kids. I want to live the van life. Um, I want to live, you know, work remotely before it became a big thing during COVID. So that's the niche carver. And the finer one, which one is really near, dear to my heart, is the defender. And that is your acts of rebellion are to protect other people from injustice. Well, that's the founding fathers, right? Well, they're also the culture shifters as well, right? Because they basically designed a a new way that you can organize a large number of people and have a, a semi-functional society. And, and and people, you know, people have no appreciation today what the founding fathers truly did and how different George Washington was as a leader for somebody to turn down being made king and own everything and he turned it all down people were thought he lost his mind i mean and he didn't even want to be in charge after he won the war he just wanted to to come home they had to push him into it for two terms and then by the third term he was like yeah i am done going back to my own farm and and there's not going to be a king so I think he was a great example of this. So why is outlawing dissent, which countries and large organizations like to do, bad for society and businesses? And how does, as you write, dissent equals progress? Yeah, there's a lot in those three statements. I mean, we should probably start here when it comes to businesses in particular, which is everybody says, I mean, if you look at 2023 trends, you, you know, you name whether it's by Deloitte or whoever or McKinsey, everybody's talking about creativity and innovation. Every organization wants it. But the question is, what is the process of getting there? And the process of getting there is messy. People don't like dissent because dissent in a group means inefficiencies. It means it takes more time, it takes more energy, and you often have to pause a little bit to make sure that the decision people are on board before you can actually follow through and implement that decision. So you really have to make a evidence-based argument to say dissent improves decision-making. And if you care of having the greatest quality ideas, are you willing to sacrifice some inefficiencies in the system to make sure that you do this better? And, and one of the most interesting findings, a lot of this comes from Charlene Nemeth, who's a really underappreciated researcher in California, who actually showed even when the dissenter is wrong and misguided, just the fact that they open the portal to what's possible, people start to think differently. Downwards, upwards, sideways, they're considering alternative possibilities and no longer holding with that like really hard, you know, wrench-like grip on their conclusions. And they're opening up the idea that maybe there are, there are are considerations that have not been given due diligence. And, and this is important. The dissenter doesn't have to be right to stimulate better thinking, better decision-making, greater creativity, and it makes the group to, to expose fewer biases when they're making that thinking. 
Why is social pressure the common denominator? In, in my formula for principled insubordination? Yeah. So this is, so the more social pressure, the, in, the decreased probability you're going to get someone who is willing to disagree and dissent publicly. Now, if you have a really good business organization, and we might get there, is you actually want people to share their ideas anonymously, privately, and then you call those ideas so the ideas are separated from the person who's the speaker. Now, those are the ideal organizations. You rarely ever see this. But let's just say in terms of what prevents people from sharing their ideas and criticisms publicly, it's really two thoughts. We have the belief that truth resides with numbers. If everybody tends to be leaning in the same direction publicly, we have two thoughts that pop into our head. One, do I really see something that other people aren't seeing? So you have this self-doubt of like, maybe I'm wrong. I mean, all of my knowledge and wisdom and everything I've accrued over my lifetime of education and personal experiences makes me think this is wrong, but I'm not, I am not. I'm humble enough to realize there are smart people in this room. Why would I be the only one that's thinking this? And the second one is, do I really want to be vilified and socially persecuted by going against the positivity and this really tight, cohesive group that happens there? So I do want to say that I understand and I'm very compassionate why people don't speak up is nobody wants social persecution and nobody should be narcissistic enough to think that there's the smartest person in the room i.e. the documentary of Enron. But that's like all entrepreneurs, right? I mean, they're the insubordinate ones because they always think there's a better way to do something. And hence why, you know, the Fortune 500, when it started, I think there's only like 10% or uh, 15% of the original Fortune 500 that still exist um, because there weren't enough insubordinate people in those organizations or they weren't being listened to. And hence they left and those companies went by the wayside. Uh, one of the questions before I go into a bigger question from the audience is, what was the name of the author of uh, work about the center? Work about about dissension. You mentioned- uh, oh, oh, sorry, uh, Charlene Nemeth, N-E-M-E-T-H. You know, one of, the, one of the fun things about writing a book and spending six years synthesizing 60 years of science is you get to give homage to all these scientists and thinkers. A lot of them are women that have not gotten um, sufficient eminence. And there's a chapter later in the book about what's your exit strategy if you're going to win as a dissenter. And almost all of the research that's in that chapter is an even less appreciated researcher, um, Radmila Prislin. And you won't find her in any of the textbooks. And I just, I'm like, I cannot believe people don't know her work of when you actually are the dissenter that will you eventually, the minority becomes the majority. Do you have an exit strategy to not treat the majority as poorly as you were treated when you are powerless as the minority? And this is a conversation that I really want culture to have society-wise and every organization to be thinking about when they make a, a big pivot. Well, I think that's because Adam Grant, a colleague from Wharton, is sucking up all of the media attention and nobody else has heard, right? That's true. Uh, <laughs> he deserves so, it. Uh, what's that? He deserves it. He's a good thinker. Yeah, yeah, he's got great books and he's a great thinker. Uh, a question from the audience. Could you argue that our current change agents, quote unquote, that organizations are bringing on board today have the same makeup of a so-called insubordinate 10 plus years ago? That's a great question. Let me actually do a third degree shift from that question and say, I think we, we put too much emphasis on the individual characters who are these people that change industries and don't pay sufficient attention to the people that are in the boardrooms, in the meetings with those people who will disagree. Not So a disagreement doesn't have to be a 180 degree disagreement. It could be, I think you're scaling too quickly. I think you are emphasizing diversity in terms of bringing people in, but you're not emphasizing what will you do with them when they enter the team. And this is a big problem you have right now in the diversity conversation. So we are 
somewhat adequate for acquiring diverse people to join teams. We are horrendous in terms of making sure they have sufficient voice and airtime in these discussions. And I'm not, I'm t- not just talking about demographics, although I'm thinking of women and people of different racial makeups. I'm also thinking of neurodivergent people and even personalities that are less frequently distributed in a group. So think of shyer and more timid people or people that are more disagreeable as opposed to very likable is we should not be dismissing people based on characteristics that are irrelevant to performance and ideas, especially when you're in the the privacy of decision-making as opposed to the public face of an organization. You know, you and I both love the Harvard Business Review and study after study comes out that that diversity is a real um, powerful tool to um, improving a company's performance. It's like 37 percent higher return on investment by having exactly what you just talked about. Yeah, the, the interesting thing is. There's often a misnomer. So Google did this Google Aristotle study, which has gotten tons of play all over the media. I think hundreds of thousands of of hits if you were to Google it right now, which is you need psychological safety for an organization to function its best. The most creative dream teams are able to function. Groups are smarter and wiser. And there's a missing finding that was done in Amsterdam I'm sorry, just in the in the Netherlands, not Amsterdam per se, which was that psychological safety where people are comfortable sharing their ideas only leads to greater performance and creativity if there is a high level of minority dissent that exists in the group. And what that means is, is that if you don't have a pool of people with different perspectives and different lenses and different histories. Who cares if you have psychological safety? Because the greatest predictor of creativity is how many ideas you have in the pool. So you can have the safest place where you will not be persecuted for speaking out. Um, you will, there's trust is assumed, assumption of benevolence before you speak. But if the pool is small of divergent thinkers, you don't have much to work with. Sounds like Charles Darwin, according to the book, was the poster boy for insubordination. Why did you categorize him as such? I guess that we don't necessarily, I mean, clearly, you know, what he put out there was um, really radical at the time. And you wrote in the book that there have been a lot of people who died on the sword um, that came way before him who put out the same ideas. So talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So just to be scientific, since I'm a scientist, 34 people put out some semblance of the idea of evolution before Darwin. And most of them, their names are forgotten in the course of history. Now, one of them is his grandfather, Erasmus Darwin, which is why Darwin exists in the first place. Um, Darwin perseverated about a few things that are fundamental to having a minority influence. And if you want to talk about being a minority, Talk about someone who is considering that maybe a higher power such as God is not responsible for the world. If you think that in the 1800s, I mean, you cannot be more of a minority. I mean, this, like you said, people died, people were died, hunted, police surveillance for having these ideas at the same time. So one thing that Darwin perseverated on was timing. What is the best time for a culture that is very religious to reveal an idea that maybe there's another gradual incremental process where creatures evolve over the course of time. So he sat on that book that was near finished for decades before he wrote it. Now, the idea of someone in 2023 sitting on a book from the age of 20 until you're 50 before you publish it is unheard of. And I'm surrounded by authors that just does not happen in an Instagram, TikTok culture. The second one, he obsessed over framing. How do I present these ideas? Not because I think I'm right, because I want other people to open up a sense of curiosity of maybe, just maybe, there is something also besides a higher power that influences the change in the species over the course of time. So he was he did. So if you read The Origin of Species, 1959, um, 1859, you will not find a a screed against religion and a screed against God, like the new atheists today. 
you will see very carefully, he does not attack religion and he doesn't attack God. He's saying, here is all this evidence from pigeons, from hummingbirds, from earthworms, you know, from barnacles. And he puts all of this very carefully under frame it and say, what do you, and even ask questions in the writing of like, reader, how could you possibly look at all this evidence and not come to a conclusion that maybe things change over the course of time based on descendants being not, not being the same as their parents and the environment having an influence. And so he invites the reader into this interactive choose your own adventure journey. There's a framing and style that he does this. And then the third part was Darwin sucked at public speaking. You would not see a TED talk by Charles Darwin in the modern world. He just so he so an interesting fact in history is that scientific conventions and in public gatherings, he had proxies who were good public speakers. And he asked them, he had the humility to say, speak on behalf of me. I don't care what credit you get. You are amazing at this. It's not my strength. Think about how many leaders in organizations today would be a Charles Darwin and allow that to happen and get and get on the Today Show and get in Fast Company and get your Harvard Business Review article and get all the spotlight that happens there. It's it is such a it is there are two virtues that have been lost in the past hundred years of history. One, Ben Franklin is the exemplar for, which is temperance. And then two is humility for me, for Darwin is like the exemplar for it. And his bulldogs, Huxley being like known as Darwin's bulldog, would fight on his behalf and help him champion those ideas. So he's good at allies, good at leveraging other people's strengths, good at framing ideas. And he was exceptional when it came to timing. Smart to bring somebody, other people on board with him so he didn't have to face it himself and get other people to endorse his line of thinking, right? You know, oh, yeah. Because so many people want to be the one who came out with the idea and get all the credit but by sharing the credit uh, with other people. Then he was able to establish, establish where people should take it seriously and not think he's a crackpot. Yeah, there, there is. Um, it's not in the book. There's a lot of ideas we're talking about that aren't in there. I call this the dissenter's paradox which is what is good for the group and society is often bad for the well-being of the individual when it comes to dissenting, is you're going to most likely take a hit in well-being. Now, now not all the dimensions of well-being, but the ones that society focuses on. Happiness will take a hit. Um, so, you know, Equanimity is going to take a hit. Social relationships are going to take a hit. But what's going to go off the charts is meaning and purpose in life, mission, personal growth, um, moving towards an aspirational future, creating you moving towards utopian ideals. So there's a trade-off here and we have to be honest about that. And what I would argue is if you were to, you know, research those people on their deathbed, those people stage four cancer, those people that know they're going to die on um, people in their eighties and nineties and ask them, they've been asked before, like, what regrets do you have? And they will say that, I wish I took a bigger stand for the things that I care the most about. And I think it is worth taking the hit to sit back with your close friends who understand you and believe in you and know that you did the right thing, even though it hurt. You know, think of like um, Serpico. You know, he was the police officer in the 70s who fought corruption right. in the New York Police Department system. His life took an incredible hit, but he was fighting against police. You, you were not supposed to go against the blue wall. If you are a police officer, you don't go against police officers, relevant to the modern world as well. He saw that police officers were accepting prostitution to be taken off charges. He saw police officers planting drugs on people who are their adversaries in everyday life. And he spoke up. And after court, a court hearing where he took the stand and he came in back into the police department, still working there. It was dead silent. And he walked in and he knew. His life was at stake, and another police officer took out a knife blade and tried to kill him. He caught his arm, dropped the blade, and just let everyone know, I am not weak. I'm taking a stand. I'm not going anywhere. And these are the models that we should have in society. And if Frank Serpico could risk his life to fight corruption in a police department, who are we 
not to speak up and say something when we see injustice happening to someone right in front of us because we're worried that someone at work might not like us. You know, you have a great story I really liked and I can relate to, and I think you probably can too, from working in ac academia, because that's a tough place that doesn't necessarily live up to its, um, I guess, to its image. Uh, you tell us an amazing but not surprising story for those of us who've worked in academia where a whistleblower called out her boss for fraud and through poor investigative integrity by the university's ethics panel, the whistleblower was destroyed and the cheating professor initially got away with it. Could you please tell us a little bit about that story and why you selected it? Yeah, it's um, so one of, the, one of the reasons I decided to tell it is it's never been told before. I was told to stay hush about this because I worked at the I worked in the, the research institute on addictions where this happened. I was a grad student at the time, and we were basically told of listen, let's not talk about this because we don't want to air our dirty laundry outside. And I think this is a very common thing in toxic cultures. And if you have the value of integrity and you care that you want to make sure that the 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 science that is released to the world is the science that is based on actual evidence and is not falsified you have a duty to to say something when you see falsehoods and you know false allegations and um fake data so this woman um Cheryl Kennedy who i think is like heroic is she real she realized that the person she was working for was collecting data from hundreds of couples where one member of the couple was uh, abusing drugs. And one day she wondered, how is he collecting this data so quickly? He just got like a hundred couples in one month. And I've never seen anything like this before. And she asked him, hey, can I see the raw data? You know, this was back when it was pieces of paper, not on a computer. And he's like, oh, it's in a warehouse in, you know, 90 miles away. And then she, and then she called the agency where supposedly he was finding people that were suffering from substance abuse and that place had never heard of him and he supposedly had never visited before. And she's basically not doing a private investigation. She just has a skepticism. She's on the team. She, her name is on these papers. And finally, she makes a call to the leaders of the Institute and saying, I think this is fraudulent data that he's making this crap up. The, they did an investigation. Um, he basically destroyed her career to some degree. She ended up having to leave and took a job at a different part of the university. Um, still to this day has colleagues that do not talk to her because of uh, that. She, she spoke out against this against this. About a year later, the New York state Senate realized that not only was the data fraudulent, but they started to look at the grants that he received and he collected millions of dollars of grants based on fraudulent data so they did an investigation then, and he was found guilty. But the interesting part about this story about dissent is Cheryl Kennedy never received an apology and was never, that mistreatment they received was never undone. And it was never of like, listen, based on what you discovered, we are going to reimburse you for all the things that you experienced under the organization and protect you for the, the rest of your lifetime. She received nothing. Like this is the first time I think publicly um, having done, you know, phone interviews with her for, for hours and hours that anyone has publicly realized like you had a heroic person response to the story. It was not the New York State Senate. It was Cheryl Kennedy that was the whistleblower for the story. And I think you don't have Erin Brodovich's, that's how you pronounce her name, Erin Brodovich? Yeah. Brodovich, yeah. 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 Um, you know, we have a famous actress plays you all the time. Most whistleblowers are not part of the historical record and don't receive accolades. And I think it's important for us to acknowledge when they exist, do due diligence to make sure that it's actually correct, because we don't want to throw aspersions at people without sufficient evidence. But when we discover the whistleblower is right, we need to put them on a pedestal because we want to increase the probability that young people, middle-aged people, older people are willing to speak out against toxicity. Thank God that they do. And that's always the case that people look at them as rats or whatever. And it doesn't deal with them. Then they're all applauded and say, oh, my God, how you know, what a great thing she did. But if they're part of that system, then then it's always a negative. Uh, what's the difference between reckless and principled insubordination? 
So this is important. And th- and I should say, because this comes up a lot, is if I said I can say there's a very clear line of when it's principled and when it's not principled, it's not co- it's not completely concrete, but there are a couple of variables that are important. One, are you contributing to the advance of the group or, or your group or society? Or are you merely, merely pointing out the frailties and problems in a system for your own attainment of likability and status? So there's a lot of people that seem like they're principled rebels today in society. Just pick your political party right now and you'll find them. But they're really doing it because they have presidential aspirations and they know this is red meat to their followers and they don't really care about this issue. This happens a lot like in these, you know, quote unquote, culture wars. Now, you see it on both sides where you're playing, you're playing with people's lives, people that are racial minorities, women, um, people that are disabled, a lot of those invisible disabilities, hearing, vision. Uh, movement, highly sensitive people, and you're using them as pawns for a game for you to get status and likability. So the the inauthenticity disqualifies you from the principled rebel part. You can still make a difference, but we wouldn't say it's a principled rebellion that you're involved in. And then the other part is, are you trying to contribute to, you see dysfunctional norms and rules, and you're really trying to create a more utopian system. And so if you're trying to close that gap, you're moving towards principled rebellion. So there's a motive part and there's an outcome part. And that it matters to determine whether someone's a principled rebel. Now, I should add this element. There are some people that seem like principled rebels from the information that we know today that we can say later, maybe it wasn't so principled, but we have to, we can't use hindsight bias is we have to actually evaluate someone within the historical parameters of what we know at the time. And I know before we went on this call, we were talking about George Washington, where a lot of people attack him in the modern day world. But you you can only really do that if you understand what information, what cultural, what cultural zeitgeist existed when George Washington was there, as opposed to using modern standards of what we know now and use that to cast an aspersion on him in the modern world. Yeah, I'm 100% uh, agree with you on that. Uh, What do you advise leaders do to handle rebels in a positive, constructive way? Because they seem to like crush them, or at least the people below them crush them before the C even know about their great ideas that they are suggesting. Absolutely, I'm so glad you raised this. So there's a few things. One, um, leaders and socially attractive people, that is people who like, again, gain the spotlight easily by walking the room. People want to be around them. Those people must be told to speak less, if not at all, when you're meeting. If they, When they speak, people, because they want their affection and they want their affinity, they're willing to agree with them, even if their ideas tend to be wrong-sided. So those ideas those characters have to be squelched. The airtime has to be given culturally. Set up a system where voices that are minority views get to be aired and there's a chance for them to be elaborated on. Now, the way to doing that is actually at any point in time, a leader can say, you know what? We've been having meetings for three and a half years right now. And I want to say, I want to change the culture of how we're doing it based on new ways of thinking and new evidence that I've just learned. Is that there's a couple there's a couple of rules of productive disagreement that I want to have. This is one of them. I am not going to speak first. I am not going to speak last. And we've had all these amazing diverse hires. I want to make sure that we have an opportunity to air them and that they will not their ideas won't be judged because of who they are, but for the quality of their ideas themselves. So we're going to create a new system where we will reveal the agenda before the meeting. People will share their ideas and those ideas will be shared and they will be separated from who is the one that produced those ideas. Only later, maybe, will we reveal who was the progenitor of those ideas. So those are a couple strategies that end up, be, end up being pretty important. The other one is for a leader to be very explicit. And I actually, actually suggested the idea of a checklist, a piece of paper sitting on everyone's chair or on their Zoom screen, however that works on a Zoom screen, where people have to check off the boxes to say, these are the values we are going to have in this group's discussion. We are focusing not on positivity for people to feel good, not for us to be cohesive and be on the same page, but autonomy 
critical thinking and independent thinking. And with those values of independent thinking, autonomy, and critical thinking, we need to view criticisms not as attacks on our characters, but because we're trying to make the best decisions and have the, we can only invest in so many ideas and have the best ideas be our investment. That is the motivation for why we're making this change. We can have positivity at happy hour afterwards. We can have positivity in the hallways. But when we're thinking about ideas and products, we need to be focusing on quality. Even if it's disturbing to you, even if it's bothersome, try to avoid ad hominems. Uh, question from the audience. Can you speak about what does the leader of the majority have to give up uh, their ego of being right to allow a dissenter voices to be considered? Oh my God, such a good question. Okay, I'm going to turn this into an equation. It's kind of how my brain works. For a group to be smarter and wiser, you need two motivational platforms, and the leader has to lead this epistemic motivation and pro social motivation. So, epistemic motivation is you have to give up the idea that we're seeking certainty. And as you're saying, we're seeking the status, the ego satisfaction that your idea was spoken from the words of other people and focus on epistemic motivation, the desire for knowledge, the desire to acquire growth, the desire to learn. That means things should be said that are counter to what the leader believes in and what is the predominant orthodoxy in a group. But that has to be coupled with pro-social motivation. So you can you can attack with kindness. You can criticize with kindness. You can you can criticize with compassion and you can criticize with the idea of I care so much about this group. I am deviating and, and sacrificing my social status and willing to accept negative valuation because the health and longevity of this group is so important to me. And we have to that pro-social element and the epistemic motivation together. That's the ingredients for the smarter and wiser group. You list 10 biases that uh, F up your thinking. What are they and which one or two concern you the most along with how do you get beyond this to become more open-minded and accepting other cultures and ideas? Well, there's no way I remember all 10 of them from this book since I wrote this a year <laughs> so ago. You can pick a couple. Yeah, yeah, And it makes so, people want to buy the book. Um, so let's play with this, is that think of the political group or or the, the, the business group that is your ultimate competitor in, your, in terms of identity right now. There's a couple of biases that we have that prevent us from seeing them as a source of knowledge. So we have this appearance bias is that, well, I understand my people and I understand the opposition um, because I've, we've spent so much time as being rivals. So we have the group bias and the group bias is, my ideas are because I've thought rationally about the evidence. They're not because I identify with the group. And we have the confirmation bias, which is I have selected this information because it's the highest quality, not because it validates my worldview. And so these biases, when you put them together, they make sure that you seize onto an idea and you freeze and resist disconfirmatory information, and you've limited the amount of things that are possible and the amount of problem-solving strategies that you can actually work with. And the other part, besides the seizing and freezing and ideas, is you have limited the silos that are open as portals of knowledge and wisdom. And when you view another group as the outsiders, horrible, terrible, rivals, someone to destroy, demolish, you have now limited the possibility that in that group lies individuals with specific ideas that you want to steal and use like an artist. You might not like them. You might not like how they use ideas, but the idea that an entire group has nothing for you to offer in terms of thinking about how you can improve your own thinking and the group's thinking is very unlikely, even at the at the greatest extremes. I mean, one thing that I didn't include in the book, which I, I spent a lot of time talking about, is because I grew up in Manhattan, 
the gay liberation front in the 1970s is one of the best examples of activists that changed the world. And the reason that gay rights, now LGBTQIA rights, was so successful so quickly sociologically is because they were really good, this, this group of activists of saying that those people that are homophobic or against us, they are not our enemies. They are stuck in status quo thinking. And so they looked at them and really examined what is it about their lives that we connect to, that we have more similarities and differences. And one of my favorite protests, there's a video of this that you can find in you know black and white archives, is them holding up signs, the Gay Liberation Front, in front of libraries, in front of Senate buildings, in front of schools, workplaces, which says, all we want to do is get divorced as much as you guys do. <laughs> and that sort of humor and playfulness and identifying with the rivals is something that modern day activists miss. And there was something about that was so disarming. You could feel the defenses drop of people that were watching this rally because they're like, yeah, like our lives, relationships aren't that great. So if people that are gay, like have another way of doing this and they can do this better, like let's listen to what they have to say. And also they were, you could see they're laughing in these videos. They're not laughing at them. It's freaking funny signs. And I think there's something to be said about minority influence of one strategy, if you lack power and status, is how can you evoke more curiosity than threat? And the 1970s, those people that were fighting on the front lines for gay rights, they understood this better than the modern activists today. And I really encourage and really love working with activists today of how can you be more influential, not just be louder? In the chapter about how to change the minds of conformists, you mentioned a punk rock band called Fugazi, which I had never heard of. I, I was only familiar with the term from Matthew McConaughey and the Wolf on Wall Street. Um, and so I, as I was, lo I looked up the band uh, as well. And you talked about the influence they had on groups like artists like Nirvana, Jay-Z, Red Hot Chili Peppers. Please tell us why you picked this group and which seemed like it belonged in the 1960s in the counterculture revolution. <laughs> uh, and what can we learn from them? Yeah, you see that I'm smiling ear to ear because this is my childhood band. I mean, everybody has their band, right? So, you know, I have aunts and uncles. It was Led Zeppelin, the Rolling Stones, who are still floating around. And for me, it was Fugazi. And the idea of being able to expose the world to my favorite in independent band that most people never heard of was just a treasure. I had a chance to interview the lead singer of... Uh, of Fugazi, and it was like really a pleasure. This was a band that was developed underground in the punk rock scene, which I know a lot of people are not punk rock fans, such as myself, but you don't need to be. Is in the punk rock scene, the heavy metal scene, the rock scene. Um, it was a very male dominated culture, still is today. And they were one of the first groups that said the band would stop playing if they saw anyone mistreat a woman in the audience and they would stop. And Ian McKay, the lead singer, would walk into the crowd with the microphone. Now, I've been to about 15 of their concerts. I've seen this happen. And he walks right up to a guy who's actually like puts his arm around a woman and the woman pushes the arm off of her and would say, hey, what's your problem? Why won't you listen to the woman? And the guy feels embarrassed and everyone's looking at him. He's like, listen, you know what? If this is how you want to behave, I'll give you your money back at the front door. You can leave and you can go listen to our CDs. Or you could say... Here, women, men, everyone's accepted. Everybody cheers. And sometimes the guy would leave and sometimes the guy would apologize right then and there. The power in a crowd of people at a concert to, for that to happen. And then for him to walk up stage as everyone's cheering, they're cheering for two things. They're cheering for Ian McKay for stepping in, <clears throat> but they're also cheering to the guy of reconciliation with him of, you know what? You realize the error of your ways and you're going to actually kind of modify your behavior when you're here. And there's, again, contrast that with the modern world where you allow forgiveness and reconciliation in a few minutes of an interaction. That is absolutely beautiful. Now, the other part of them that's, there's a lot more to them, but one of the parts that's worth mentioning now, they got to the point where there were millions of people who had bought their CDs, records, and tapes. Even though you haven't heard of them, they're actually quite well known. I think they crossed 10 million. Um, they never raised the price of their CDs. 
it was always $5 and they never raised the price of concerts. <clears throat> always $10, no matter how big they got, because they believe that they were, they believe that kids, which they once were, cannot afford concerts in the modern world. And they never wanted to make it outside of their reach. And, and they would never play a venue that wasn't an all ages shows were allowed to make sure that a 14 and 15 year old that liked their music, they wouldn't miss, they wouldn't miss access. <clears throat> Sorry. In got choked, book, got choked up. That, that's, you know, I, but again, that's the beauty of reading these books. You learn about all kinds of, of groups and people that you never thought about before. In the book, you write that everyone has a difficult time accepting new ideas. Why is that? And how does the concept of anxious uncertainty enter into this? And you've been talking a little bit about this throughout uh, this interview. We fear uncertainty and we don't understand the psychology that in, in most situations outside of finances and outside of our poor relationships, uncertainty often intensifies and prolongs positive experiences. Now, I'll give you an example of one of my favorite studies that exists about organ donors. So imagine you're basically going to die if you don't get a, a kidney, a lung, or a bladder to have an organ donation. And this is going to happen. And you are told in the, in, the, in the hospital, would you like to meet your donor, the person that donated a part of their body into you? And how do you think you'll feel? Now, almost everybody says, oh my God, of course, like we're going to have this incredible hug and I'm going to be like a part of you is in part is inside of me. We're like one person. We're going to be best friends. They're going to come for Thanksgiving and Christmas. Of course, I want to meet them. And other people say like, nah, it sounds like an awkward in encounter. And what you find is they actually observe people over time meeting the people that donated an organ to them. And they do have these really you know, tearful, beautiful, poignant social interactions but mostly those relationships dissipate rather quickly because most people have very rich, filled lives, family members, neighbors, coworkers, friends. The people that don't meet the person donating the organ, they cannot hedonically adapt to the experience. They can't resolve this. What kind of freaking crazy, generous, kind, benevolent world do I live in that someone will give up an organ and risk their probability of dying young, and they don't even care if they actually get credit for it. I can't get over that. Like, I got to be a nicer person. And so we believe that the uncertainty will be worse, not meeting the person who donates the organ. And yet, it is the uncertainty of not knowing that is more likely to change your personality, that you become a better person in the aftermath of these events. And this happens all the time. And so in terms of dissenting from the norm, we think that the uncertainty, the unrest that will occur will be so long lasting that there's no way that I want to create and induce a storm. And yet we find that often groups are more likely to change, but it takes time. And we tend to be a very, very impulsive group and we get more impulsive over the course of human history. Um, you can't expect all the changes in terms of racial equality. Um, the transformation of police organizations, the transformation of government, it's not going to happen in five years or less. And for us to understand the psychology of persuasion and influences, realize it will be slow, gradual changes. And if you did it any faster and push it any faster, you often get unnecessary friction and adversaries and obstacles. And, and you know, in terms of the 10 year, the 10 years reign for to move from gay marriage to becoming legalized, that is an unheard of sociological speed. And that's a decade. And so I just think that we really have to understand the psychology of time for a lot of these changes, especially at the global level of an entire country or an entire state. I have a question from the audience. Do you have a prediction when the mindset will become mainstream, you know, the mindsets you've been talking about? Honestly, I am a defensive pessimist on this. So a defensive pessimist is they hope for the best, but they brace for the worst. I really think that human psychology in terms of defense of the status quo, 
This is one of the biases, status quo bias, is that we believe things that are around for a long time are inherently better than newer things. Now, we might have that glow of seeing something new, but in general, we feel a sense of reassurance and comfort with how things are. So think of the Supreme Court, right, in terms of, you know, right now, conflicts of interest of spouses of Supreme Court justices is becoming very, you know, you, you learn now of two Supreme Court justices with hundreds of thousands of dollars that we're talking at play. And we're talking about a lot of court precedents that might have been influenced by the spouses of Supreme Court justices. You have to ask yourself, of how long will it take for the Supreme Court to change the number of Supreme Court justices? Should they have tenure? It's only a certain period of time. And then, hey, you're not the Pope. Nice meeting you. Time for the next Supreme Court justice to come in there. I think it will happen, but I think it will be slow and gradual and painful for everyone that recognizes what's happening right now. And that's how social change often operates. I think that the majority of people will, for the for most of human history, will have a status quo bias. And it requires a small subset of people that will be willing to speak up against popular sentiments. And what I'm hoping for is that in the short term that, you know, and this is one of my missions in life is to teach people to be better audience members. Cause that's where the real majority is, is can we be more receptive, not to increase the number of people that dissent, but can we embrace and welcome it when it occurs? Because we know, even if I don't like what you're saying, it is mentally liberating. And I think that I think that we will see massive changes over the course of the next few years. And one of the most promising things, which I was just reading about yesterday, is a smartphone liberation group of a bunch of teenagers where they basically decide is that we realize that smartphones are affecting the quality of our friendships and our and our social interactions and our ability to read and learn. And they've abandoned smartphones. And I watch these teenagers and I say, this is the kind of activism that's going to work. Groundswell, grassroots of a bunch of kids where they where they inspire other kids to say, you know what? What would it be like if I was like an 80s kid and there were no smartphones? I could use to call and text, but for nothing else that happens there. And I think we're going to see hopefully a lot more of these little, little social experiments. And when people see how satisfying it is for them, and we give that we, as an audience member, we give them a platform and a stage that those little grassroots experiments will be the things that change society. It won't be a big whistleblower and it won't be a big best-selling author that does it. It really will be these packs of teenagers that kind of uh, start to start to question and challenge it, not with righteous indignation, but with a sense of, I want more exuberance and I have a better vision. Because the vision part is key. You can say what you hate, but if you can show the emotional elements of a better vision of how life can be led, that's what's going to lead to a, a, you know, a great deal of following that occurs there. A uh, question from the audience. People who are neurodivergent have been left behind for ages. What are your suggestions to change these community regards? I have, you know, we can talk for an hour on this um, because, you know, I, I think this is I think this is one of many missing categories in the diversity discussion. Yeah, it's given lip service, but it's it's really not because being around a neurodivergent person right now, I'm teaching a class. I have two I have two students, my college class, in the science of well-being have autism. Um, their behavior is our oddities compared to everyone else. And it is again, it's an inefficiency. It is challenging. It requires a lot more handwork. But the way I view it, and this is the beauty of doing this work and writing a book like this, as you start to make sure you're not a hypocrite, is I know that their view, when they speak, it is so distinct from everyone else. Even if it's absurd, it leads to these very interesting adjacent conversations, which takes everyone in a cool direction. And I love to see what happens when it goes there. It's basically improv comedy. Um, you just kind of like it's improv comedy in the context of education. And I think we need to have a conversation that goes along those lines, which is in the workplace. It's not just you get people that have ADHD and you get people that have autism and they're working there. It's that when you when they, when you open space for them to speak, 
the conversation will not be the same anymore. It's going to go in an odd direction. You are not going to be able to predict it by definition, neurodivergent when it goes there. What are you going to do when when we take a 45 degree turn in this conversation? Because that's what people are not prepared for. Again, we are somewhat adequate at bringing diverse people in. We are freaking terrible at extracting the unique information and perspectives from those diverse people. The ideas that I'm speaking of is about how to unlock the benefits of diversity. You don't get the benefits by having them there. You get the benefits from the extraction, but the extraction is weird, awkward, and painful, and inefficient. So unless you actually are explicitly talking about this, it's not easy, but man, is it going to be fun if you have the right attitude and the right expectations. Then and only then will they have a chance to make a difference in the workplace. And not all their ideas, their ideas of the neurodivergence among us probably have the similar probability of high and low quality as any of the rest of us. But because we're not extracting, they are not getting the number of ideas that are good out on the table. You write about raising insubordinate kids. I think I got two of those kids myself. Uh, I raised daughters to push the envelope and be nonconformist in a positive way. I would tell them to follow the rules that make sense and won't physically or mentally harm, uh, harm yourself or someone else. Please talk about the rebel maker principles and how to maximize your child's potential. Yeah, uh, parenting book is coming up three books from now. So I just have to wait till my kids uh, see what they become, if they make it to college and if they have uh, somewhat satisfied with their lives, whatever they, whatever it is that they do, whether they're park rangers or whether they're engineers, don't care as long as they're satisfied and not harming anybody. Um, but one of the most important principles is it's just like the conversation about neurodivergent individuals is that you have to allow friction for your children to have full understanding of the rationale before behind the decisions you make and to train them to start asking people, well, why, why is that the case? Who started that way? You know, I just think of Ellen Langer was the first woman to get tenure at any academic institution at Harvard. And I remember her telling me this story in 1998 about seeing all these people that have signs in their lawn that said, don't step on my lawn and wouldn't say why, wouldn't give rationale. And so she was like, anytime you see that sign of a directive of what not to do or what to do, always remember there's a person behind that directive. And to be truly curious, to be truly humble is to train people to ask, who was the person that started this? Why is it there? What's the rationale? And then for the, for the progenitor of that idea to be humble enough to say, oh, I'm so glad you asked. You, sh- you should have asked because who am I to have, su- have such a obsessive authoritarian approach to say, I can just say, don't step on my lawn. And you're going to assume that I know exactly what I what I mean, and you, you should abide by my rule just because I have private property. I think you should say, because um, I'm trying to create an ecosystem here and the lawn is very fragile and we are trying to, we're really interested in insects and hummingbirds and bugs. And so don't crush a zoo. That's just enjoy, enjoy this entire fauna and flora that I'm designing here in the walkway. Now, obviously the sign would be smaller than that, but that's, a kid should be asking that question and an adult should be offering that kind of answer. And if, if adults don't do that, you, you, that's then and only then it's worthwhile for you to step in. Let me just, uh, Mark, do we have time for a very quick story about this? Yeah, we have two minutes. Okay. Um, remember when the tape came out, um, the access Hollywood tape with Donald Trump? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So my twin daughters were about seven at the time. And my neighbor was a very big Trump fanatic supporter back then. And my daughter asked him, and this is almost verbatim. He said, she said, um, he was talking about Trump with unsolicited. And she said, well, what about the whole idea that you can just grab a woman by the bajujus? Yeah. And think about this opportunity. It's my next door neighbor. He's in his 70s. He could say anything to this girl. 
seven-year-old. She does not have a political affiliation because I don't have a political affiliation. And I haven't trained her to think about, you know, these two parties and what they stand for. This is how he responded. Clinton did much worse than Trump. To my seven-year-old twins, to which my daughter then said, who's Clinton? Because he's talking to her, not as a curious kid who really wonders, like, are you supporting a guy that thinks it's okay to grab a woman's private parts? He's thinking that she's a Democrat. And so, and he's making a, a, you know, a false comparison to the behavior of a prior president. And a seven-year-old just wants to know, do you have my back? Do you have my back as a woman, as a girl who's going to become a woman? And what a waste. Of, and I told him this afterwards, what a wasted opportunity. Like you could have like really helped someone understand what your value system was and the difference between voting for a politician and what it is to be a good human being that happens there. And instead you chose a partisan soundbite to throw at my seven-year-old twin. And that is the opposite of raising an insubordinate. So to raise an insubordinate kid is for them to, you get to question anyone just do it from a place of interest and intrigue and not trying to do a you know gotcha moment. Todd, I have to tell you, I can't wait for you to come out with the next book and have you back again. So I've really enjoyed the hour one very quick. And I know everybody enjoyed hearing you talk about your book and everything you learned along the way. So thank you very much for taking the time to speak with us. Oh, these questions were incredible. So thanks for taking me down roads I did not expect to travel on. Excellent. Everybody have a wonderful weekend. Todd, you have a great weekend as well. And we'll look forward to hopefully having you back in the future. Absolutely. Bye, everyone. Take care. See you next week. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Best Business Minds. Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time for our live recordings. Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.